Good morning, church. My name is Scott Gilliland. I am one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane, and I'm thankful to be with you today as we continue in our sermon series that we've started the year with that we've called No Outsiders. This is a series that Stan assembled uh, after he was looking at the lectionary texts for these first few weeks of the year, and he saw a recurring theme of God's ability to include in surprising ways in the body of Christ. And so we continue that series today with a sermon on the subject of the body of Christ. I want to open today's sermon, though, stating something that may seem fairly obvious. Our world is prone to conflict, yes? Venezuela is in the midst of possible civil war due to former President Maduro's refusal to give up power to the president-elect. A journalist in Ghana was killed after revealing corruption in the highest levels of FIFA, the international soccer organization. LGBT people in the Russian Republic of Chechnya are fleeing for their lives as authorities engage in another state-sanctioned genocidal purge of LGBT persons. And a deadly record high temperatures in southern Australia have reignited heated debate over the reality and effects of climate change. That's just the news from this past week. That's just a few of the highest profile stories from this past week. That was me spending two, say two minutes church searching online. And that's not including the dozen other stories I could have included. But I figured we got the point. The point is our world is prone to conflict. Whether or not you knew of every story that I just shared, the fact that conflict is an all too often and ugly and painful result of the human condition, that is not news. In fact, as a preacher, and a young preacher at that, I've heard people say to me in the past, I wish we didn't have to talk about that in church. And when they say that, usually it's because the that that they're referring to is a particularly conflict-driven subject. Because let's be honest, conflict is exhausting. The other night I was watching boxing. I know that preachers shouldn't admit that they like to watch boxing, but I do. And it struck me how relatively short a boxing match is. These are grown men who've trained for years or in some cases even decades for those 12 rounds, three minutes apiece. Boxers are some of the most highly conditioned athletes in the world, and even they are utterly exhausted after 36 minutes. I think sometimes we come to the church like a boxer comes to the corner during the end of a round, tired, Exhausted, bruised, needing to catch our breath and sit for just a moment without fearing an incoming jab. Church, say, (gasps) have you ever felt like that walking into church? And so we can be tempted to believe that the church is a place where conflict should not exist. Where everybody just gets along. Where we don't talk about that. But it begs a question that I think we need to wrestle with today. How do we understand conflict in the Christian community? The Apostle Paul, the early church leader who pastored and mentored churches throughout the Mediterranean, Paul understood that when we bring people together, even in the name of Jesus, conflicts will arise. He'd seen it at church after church. 
in city after city. He'd been to Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and Rome. And in this first letter to the Corinthians, he offers them a way, not of understanding conflict really, but a way of understanding who they were as the church that then would inform how they understood conflict. Today, I want us to read his words found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. If you want to find that in your pew Bibles, I encourage you to do so. Words that many of us have heard many times before, I imagine. But I want us to hear them. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. I want us to hear them understanding that Paul wrote these words to a community in the thick of conflict. This was not a peaceful church. They were tearing themselves and potentially the Corinthian church apart. Let us rise in body and spirit as we hear these words from the Apostle Paul again this morning. Paul says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and were, made, and were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I am not part of the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for the cold winter wind. We remember those who don't have the warmth of a Christian community to call home this morning. God, we ask that you would allow us to be filled with your spirit. That when we leave this place, we might invite others to join us in this warmth. We give you thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. In this passage, I hear Paul offering the ancient Corinthian church and the modern Dallas church a few ways that the Christian faith should or could be a healing agent for a world rife with conflict. I grew up here in DFW in between Dallas and Fort Worth in the mid-cities, and I attended Euless Trinity High School. Tease up. Any other Trojans in the room? No? Okay. Tough crowd. 
Euless, Texas, has long been proud to be an ultra-diverse corner of the world. When I attended Trinity, we were proud to say that we had over 40 different languages spoken on our campus by students. The Hall of Flags in our administrative building, it looked like the United Nations. We wore our diversity like a badge of honor. And in many ways, we saw it as our hallmark, our defining characteristic during the tail end of the white flight era in DFW. Now, a lot has changed in DFW since then, yeah? No longer is Euless as unique in its diversity. In fact, diversity seems to be more the rule rather than the exception. This past week, for instance, I was at my local grocery store. I was at the Kroger going to pick up some dinner in Plano before I headed home. And as I walked in the store and I was making my way to the produce section to pick up some asparagus because New Year's resolutions are fun. (laughs) I heard at least five different languages being spoken by staff and customers. Diversity, it seems. Church is here to stay. Now, the city of Corinth was not unlike DFW 2,000 years ago. You could say Corinth was the DFW of the ancient Roman Empire. It was a booming economy, wildly diverse, intersections of trade routes right there in the heart of Corinth. And that brought with it people who spoke many different languages and were from very different cultures. And they all called Corinth home. Sound familiar? Paul saw this not as an obstacle, but as a great strength. He saw the church in Corinth as a living testimony to the power of Christ, reaching not just one people or some people, but all people. You know, at one point in his life, Paul was more prejudiced than most. He was a narrow-minded leader in the Jewish community, going so far as to execute Christian disciples. Until he himself encountered the power and presence of Christ. And it was through this spiritual experience that Paul's mind and his perspective and his worldview were radically changed. The way that Paul understood the world and God's children living within it were radically changed. And so when Paul says something like, for in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, church, Paul does not say those words lightly. Paul is definitively saying for Corinth and the world and eternity that the church is not a home for prejudice. It is not a home for racism. It is a home for all God's children, and that home is going to, by definition, be wildly diverse. I'm a proud alum of Trinity High School, and I couldn't help but smile as I made my way to the produce section this week because I believe the same as Paul. Diversity makes us great, and it makes our gospel relevant to a world of prejudice. The church needs to be able to say that any ideology that would put one people above another, that would promote the supremacy of someone simply because of their race or their skin color, their culture or country of origin, any worldview that reduces any people to anything less than a beloved child of God has no home, is too narrow for the body of Christ. Embracing Christ means embracing a bigger worldview.
Stan and I got to experience this firsthand this week. You guys may have heard that we co-authored a book together. It's for sale in the Spire for $12.99. You can also find it on Amazon. <laughs> we wrote this book called Together in an effort to uplift the Lover's Lane story and to hopefully be a point of light for our denomination as we deal with our own conflicts in these coming years and especially at a global gathering in the month of February coming up. And Stan and I realized that about 30% of the delegates coming to this global gathering of Methodists, about 30% of these 800 some odd delegates speak French. They're delegates from Africa and French speaking countries in Africa. And so our English book isn't going to do a whole lot of good with French speaking audiences. And guess what Stan and I don't do very well? Speak French. Guess what we do even worse? Write in French. And so we asked someone to translate the book for us. We got the book translation back this week, and something hit me like a ton of bricks. I looked at the translation. I saw the cover page. And where in English our book title says together, guess what it says in French? I'm going to butcher it. Pardon my French. It says ensemble, or in broken American, ensemble. Well, that's a better title. I was actually kind of frustrated I hadn't thought of that first. Ensemble, last week Stan talked about the church, the place where many voices and many instruments get played, but we do so in harmony. We do so circled around the great conductor, the maestro of Christ. I'm thankful this week for the people of Africa leading me to learn some French so that I could see the church as an ensemble. Embracing Christ means embracing a body of Christ that may not always speak the same language but we do speak the same language of love. Let me say even more simply and perhaps pointedly, it is not the body of Christ's job to become more like you or me. It is our job to become more like Christ. And Christ speaks to people of all ages, races, nations, genders, and abilities. So after establishing this radically inclusive vision that Paul has for the church, Paul acknowledges that with this diversity will undoubtedly come conflict. We at Lover's Lane know that when we ask God to send all people and all people begin to show up, guess what all people are not? The same. They're not the same. Conflict is going to show up too. And Paul asks us, what will be our response as the body of Christ. Recently, I was driving home in my neighborhood, and, and our streets in our neighborhood are, are wide enough where a car can be parked on one side and a car can be parked on the other side, and there's just enough room in the middle for one car to fit through. Do you live in a neighborhood like that too? And so I came up, and there were these two cars in between two parked cars, but they were facing each other, and neither I couldn't get around them. They were almost bumper to bumper just sitting there blocking traffic, which was me. I was the traffic, you know. It's a slow neighborhood. I sit there for a second wondering, what, what is going on? And then I think, well, you know, I live in Plano. Everybody's nice in Plano. It's like Pleasantville up there, right? You know, and, and so I'm thinking, well, maybe one of them, their, their car battery died, and the other guy's just being a good neighbor, and he's helping them get a jump. And so I think, well, I'm a Methodist pastor. I'm supposed to be a good Samaritan. So I get out of my car thinking, well, maybe they need some cables or something. And I get out of my car. As soon as I get out of my car, I start walking to the two cars. The car facing me begins to back away. And the other car pulls through. And I realized what was going on. I turn around and sit back in my car. 
His battery wasn't dead. They were in a standoff. And I sit in my car, and the car that had backed out, he's now pulling through. And it's this older guy, and he rolls his window down, and he wants to say a word to me. And so I roll my window down, too, even though I'm very frustrated. And he says, very matter-of-factly, sorry about that. He was being a rear, which was a nice Plano placeholder for something else I imagine he wanted to say. I drove away wondering what would have happened if I had not intervened in this suburban standoff. They could have been here this very morning still sitting there because evidently that was the most important thing they had to do all day. I think it's important to remember that in the body of Christ, we will all encounter rears. Hear me, church. Hear me, church. It's funny and it's true. Rude people. Mean people. People who frustrate us, who annoy us, who drive us crazy. And if you're like me, when you encounter a rear in the body of Christ, your natural instinct is to want to say, get lost. We want to cut them off, as Paul would say. But Paul doesn't let us off the hook that easy. No, brother Paul never does. We can't just throw up our hands and declare that the rears are unworthy of the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Says Paul. I think Paul is addressing our natural tendency to separate from anyone and everyone who makes our life more complicated, more challenging. Paul is challenging us in our tendency to create a body around us that agrees with us, that echoes our thoughts and our beliefs. And Paul is calling us to think about our community in a more challenging and more restorative way. I hear Paul saying to me this week, when the body of Christ is giving us grief, we want to amputate, but God calls us to heal. When the body of Christ is giving us grief, we want to amputate, but God calls us to heal. The problem with amputating the body of Christ, Paul says, is that no body can simply be eyes or ears or hands or feet. That would be a bit of a creepy body, yes? The healthiest bodies have all of the parts present, and that means that we have to work to live together with the whole body, yes, church, even the rears. And we would do well to remember that each of us is someone else's rear in the body of Christ. If you don't believe me, trust me. Ask the person that's sitting four pews behind you because they got sick of sitting one pew behind you. You're somebody's rear. Maybe I'm your rear. I'm okay with that. The church needs people of all gifts. We need evangelists and teachers and accountants and greeters and missionaries and pastors and musicians. And yes, even you too, lawyers. And the church needs people of all persuasions. We need traditionalists and progressives and centrists and level-headed and hot-headed and people who lead with their hearts and people who lead with their heads. And here's the hardest part of all. Here's the part that you don't want me to say. The body of Christ is not here for the perfect and the whole. We are here for the broken and the lost, which sounds nice, but what that means is we're here for the hateful. We're here for the selfish. And we're here for the racist. And we're here for the addicted. And we're here for the sinful. And before you begin to think that that's somebody else, I want you to find your name on this list. We're here for the hateful. We're here for the selfish. 
We're here for the racist. We're here for the addicted. Church, we are here for the sinful. Church, we cannot proclaim the power of repentance, the power of a person turning to God and God's grace, and also cut off the people who are in the very need of repentance. And we can never forget that each and every day, you and me, we are in need of repentance. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're getting some old-time religion today, church. Do I need to remind us again? All have fallen short of the glory of God. Truly, all of us are the rear in need of the body of Christ. Do you hear me say amen if you do? As we work, though, to promote a more inclusive and healthy body of Christ, as we remain committed to not cutting off the parts that we disagree with or the parts that we don't like, how do we do this well? What does Paul have to say for us? When I come to the end of what Paul says here in these words today, I'm struck by this vision for a body that seems beautifully in sync with itself. Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. You know, as much as things change, things tend to stay the same, even after 2,000 years. It seems like Paul is addressing something in the culture of first century Corinth that is alive and well in 21st century Dallas. Self-centeredness is a dangerous disease. You know, we love to make fun of teens these days for having their noses buried in their phones, but it's not like they invented self-centeredness. Paul's talking about it 2,000 years ago in the Mediterranean, y'all. We can get so wrapped up in our own existence that we forget there is an entire world outside of our personal existence. Paul is quick to remind us of something that is true with bodies and is true with communities. Paul tells us that the strongest bodies listen well. The strongest bodies listen well. Notice that Paul doesn't say if one member suffers, the body reminds it that others are probably suffering more. Paul doesn't say if one member is honored, the rest of the body passive-aggressively expresses their jealousy. When we're part of a Christian community church, we sacrifice, we place on the altar that individualistic life that the world is offering us. We mourn with those who mourn, whether we understand it or not. We rejoice with those who rejoice because their reason for rejoicing is enough. As much as self-centeredness, though, seems to be an eternal struggle for God's people, there's a more recent trend that I'm seeing that threatens our ability to listen well in the image of Paul. Have you ever met a one-upper? Do you know what I'm talking about? A one-upper, that's the type of person that listens to what you're saying only so that they can say something next that's a little bit bigger than what you said. Right? So you're talking about your recent trip to Galveston, and wouldn't you know it, they just went to Brazil. Or last week you had a fever of 101, and they had a fever of 102. Have you ever met a one-upper? Are you a one-upper? It's confession time, church, no. I'm seeing a trend that people try to one-up each other's pain. People try to one-up each other's pain. When someone tries to say that they're hurting, I'll hear other voices say, well, that's too bad, but, you know, I'm hurting too. Or, you might be in pain, but that's really nothing compared to X, Y, and Z. 
Have you heard this? Have you seen this? I was talking to someone recently who said something that I thought was profound. They said that when someone is telling us why they're in pain, if we in turn one-up them with our own pains or frustrations, it's like visiting someone in the hospital only to tell them in detail how you've been feeling sick. See how silly that sounds? And yet I know I've been guilty of this. As hard as it can be, healthy bodies listen to each other. They don't one-up each other. They're able to sit and listen to pain, even and especially when the pain doesn't make sense. Can an ear really understand a stubbed toe anyways? Or could a knee understand a toothache? When the Christian community is able to listen well, we offer a powerful witness to a culture of one-upsmanship. Our silence, our ability to listen is a deafening roar in a culture dominated by the loudest voices. At Lover's Lane, I pray that we could be a church like the one Paul dreamed of for the Corinthians. That we could be a church that continues to celebrate a diversity that includes all of God's children. That we could remember the body of Christ has a rear and all of us play that role from time to time. That we can commit ourselves to not cut off the parts that we don't like, but instead humbly ask God to lead us in our healing efforts. That we could be a home for the lost and the broken, the mean and the hard-hearted so that sinners like us could come to know Christ. And mostly I pray that we could listen well. And while we may not always understand the pain or the rejoicing, we could be so in love with this body of Christ that their reality becomes our own. You are mine and I am yours and together we are each other's. This is life in the body of Christ. Amen.